0: Welcome to Chase the Vase Podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Welcome to the Chase the Vase Podcast. I'm here with a personal friend of mine, Patrick Fitzgibbons. And Patrick, what's cool is a lot of times as podcast hosts, you are a podcast host of the Criminal Justice Evolution podcast, so you understand that it's not every day that you get to hang out and talk to a good buddy. No,
1: man, and I am just, you are more than a good buddy to me, my friend. You are, you were instrumental in the changes I had to make in my life. We'll talk about it. But yeah, I'm always excited to get on the opposite end of an interview because I love it, man, just like you do.
0: I just think it's cool that we get to communicate with each other. Let me intro you a little bit. You are a retired police officer with deck, two decades of experience, an author, which was really cool. I got to get this book, man, EVOLVE. Send it to you, brother. But I need a signed copy, man. I need to put it up. You know what I mean? I need one, man. You'll get it. Whatever you want. This is a collection of routines and habits and advice for law enforcement personnel. How did you come up with that acronym EVOLVE?
1: You know, that's a great question, brother. I was just thinking, I knew I, I retired in 2019. My dad had passed away in 2019, uh, earlier in the year, and I wanted to continue to give back to the the first responder community that has been so grateful and so good to me over the years. And I just wanted to get get something out there to help first responders. So I just put pen to paper, brother, jotted jot down and a lot of ideas. You know, I had a lot of people helping me with it. I mean, I wasn't by myself, and I just came up with the acronym EVOLVE, and it just kind of blossomed after that. So I think every first responder, brother, has, you know, it doesn't matter if you're police, fire, EMS, every first responder has a story to tell, man.
0: I'm excited to get into this, but people need to understand that you are a podcast host. You do uh, five years now.
1: It's, you know, it's been crazy. I mean, I think it's a little over five, pushing six now. And I started the show, yeah, about six years ago, and I love podcasts, as you know, buddy. I listen to every different type of podcast, and I just was driving around one night on patrol, and I was listening to a show. I think it was Joe Rogan or, or Lewis Howes or something like that, and I was like, you know, man, I want to try this. I, I, you know, I can do this, and I just did it, man. As you know, Brock, I mean, you just got to take that first step. And I did it and it kind of, you know, grew and grew and grew. And I'm just blessed and grateful that the show, you know, has been the success it has been uh, over the years. But, you know, I can't do it without the amazing guests like you have come on. That's what really makes the show is people's stories and the authenticity and the humility that goes with the show. And I talk about police subjects, too. I mean, you know, use of force and things like that. But, yeah, it's been a great show, man. I've been blessed.
0: Well, if you don't mind, man, let's get down to the real—the real reason we're here today is—is is to be able to share our story. And people who know you know that you are a very charismatic individual. You are a strong—I mean, I look at you on this screen, man, and I, and I see power behind who you are. I've interviewed a lot of people, and they're like, "Hey, do you know you know Patrick Fitzgibbons? If you don't, you should go contact him." What's interesting, what what makes me feel good is that we all struggle. We all have fears. We all have to cope with these fears. And I know I I would like you to tell your story if you don't mind. And we can just banter about it because I think there's so much power in it. What you've gone through the last few months impresses me more than who you were before. That makes kind of helps you understand it.
1: No, it makes, it makes perfect sense. And and thank you for the kind words, brother. I'm just going to start, kind of rewind a little bit and go back uh, December 27th, uh, 2020. My uh, The family was together. I'm in Colorado, or, or not in Colorado now, but uh, my home is in Colorado. The family was there. Kids were there. My son was uh, back from the Air Force. And so we were really excited that my son was, was home. And on December, had a great holiday. And on December 27th, every time my stepdaughter would come home, we had this tradition is, you know, we would work out every day. And she got up really early at around 5 a.m. And I heard this and I was waking up and I heard this scream uh, from downstairs. And she said, you know, Patrick, get down here. And so I'm freaking out. I run down the stairs. I get to the kitchen and I see my son lying on his back, you know, gasping for air. And he's in and out of consciousness. And, you know, my stepdaughter uh, is, you know, scared. I'm scared. My wife comes down. Everybody's scared. Uh, he, I'm looking in his eyes and I'm like, what's wrong? He can't speak. I'm trying to give him uh, sternum rubs because he keeps falling in and out of consciousness. So my wife calls 911. You know, the police were lucky enough to you live in a smaller uh, city where the police got there, EMS got there pretty quickly. I thought, brother, I thought it was, you know, it's got to be a medical thing. So I was thinking, you know, he's perfectly healthy. He's in the Air Force. You know, those are stringent tests you have to go through in the military. And so I'm thinking, I, I don't know what's wrong, but they're going to take care of him. I was scared, man. I was I was trying to hold back the tears. And here's my son, you know, 20 years old. And so the EMS comes, they they get him in the bus or the ambulance. Uh, they take him off. Some of my friends' police officers are there. I know these guys. And so before my wife and I went to the hospital, I went downstairs to his room. That's where his room was. And I opened up his door and there was just, he had vomited all over the place, you know, just all over the place. And I think, I'm thinking, ah, that has got to be a medical. I mean, they're going to take care of him. He's breathing. You know, they're going to take care of him. So get to the hospital due to COVID, you know, my, my wife and I weren't allowed to get in and back there. Eventually I was, I was allowed to go back. So I get in there and I'm, you know, he's, he's aware now he's, he's awake. And, you know, I grab his hand, I'm, I'm crying. And I'm like, you know, buddy, what happened? He's like, I don't know, dad. I came up the stairs and I just fell over. And I said, well, you're in good hands. Now your vitals look good. They're going to take good care of you. Just, just hang in there. I love you. I'm here for you. We're here for you. Uh, he said, okay, well, about that time, my stepdaughter who found him, texted me and said, hey, you need to call me or text me or call me. And so I, you know, went out of the ER and I called her and she said, you know, I was cleaning the room and I found some suicide notes. And brother, that, my heart sank, you know, and it's hard for me to tell this story, but uh, my heart sank, you know, and suicide notes to about five or six family members, myself included, my wife uh, and his stepsisters. And of course his sister, you know, I I was in shock, you know, I I was upset, emotionally upset, obviously. And so, you know, I go back into the ER room where he's at and you know, I grab his hand, I'm trying to hold back the tears and I grab his hand and I said, you know, you're doing okay. I mean, did you try to hurt yourself? Did you try to kill yourself? And he said, "Yeah, dad, I did." And I were both crying and I didn't ask him why. I said, "You're going to be in good hands," you know, but the hardest thing I had to do was go to the physician, the ER doctor and say, "You know, my son tried to commit suicide. He had drank uh, a lot of Jack Daniels and took some pills, some, uh, some uh, Advil, took a handful of them. You know, you need to help my son. And so, you know, again, he's in the military, in the Air Force. He got some of the best treatment, brother, out there. And I was scared. I remember my son telling me, he was like, Dad, please don't let the Air Force know they're going to kick me out. I have a lot of regrets in my life, but one of the biggest regrets I had was, you know, if they call you, Dad, because you're a point of contact, uh, please don't tell them what happened. Just say it was a medical. And so I, w- his chain of command called me, and I was speaking to this very nice uh, lieutenant, and she said, you know, Mr. Fitzgibbons, you know, what's going on with your son? And I said, I don't know. You know, it's just a medical, knowing what I knew at the time. And so, you know, through a series of calls, she later found out what was going on you know, and I apologized to her and said, you know, I'm sorry I said what I said. And she said, you know, I understand, but we're going to we're gonna take care of your son. You know, we love your son. He's an asset. He does a great job. So the Air Force did, brother. They took really good care of him. He got some of the best therapy out there. And I know for people, maybe they've had some bad experiences with the military and the VA. I'm going to tell you right now, the military, uh, he's in the Air Force. It was great to him. I have no complaints. I did a lot of intensive therapy, group, things like that. So what I didn't realize at the time, brother, is that was the catalyst. That was the pivotal point for me and my mental health that moment in time, because I started to, when I saw my son on that floor, I saw him and all the visions that I have experienced and all the trauma and all the, you know, the death and the sorrow I have experienced through the military, but mostly through law enforcement, started coming back. And my wife, I was isolating. I was pushing my family aside. You know, because of that, and I started drinking, and I started isolating. But I, I thought in my mind, as that, you know, I'm going to be okay. I mean, this is what cops do, this is what first responders do, so I'm okay. So fast forward a little bit, uh, it was about April now, and I came down to Arizona to visit some relatives. And when I got back, my wife said she wanted a divorce and that hit me like a ton of bricks. I wasn't expecting it, but in retrospect, when I think about it, I was pushing her away. Now, I know marriage is a two-way street, but I started that divorce process, which was painful for both of us, not just me, but it was a painful process. So at some point, I moved in because my wife now had access to the house. I was in the house for a while, and now she was moving in, and I had to move out. Moved in with my younger brother, God bless him, and I was staying with him, and, but I started to Fall down, fall down, fall down, fall down, Father. I had spoken to you, brother, and God bless you. you were on the phone with me a lot uh, and communicating with me, but I was just sinking deeper and deeper and deeper, brother. I would wait, I would get up, I would wait till the liquor store open, and I would get up, go get. beer was my go-to, and I would come home and just drink. and it started around 10 some days, most days, it started around 10 a.m. Uh, I was fortunate during that time to get a job, a really good job. But I was so depressed that I blew off the job. I was there for about a week. That job ended. doesn't surprise me because I was in that state until I started thinking about killing myself. I started thinking about ending my life. And I remember I was in the backyard. I know the exact moment I had thought about it, suicidal ideation. But I remember I was sitting in my brother's backyard and I was looking at a shed in my brother's backyard. And I said, that's where I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to kill myself in that shed. I'll park my car around the block. People will think I'm gone. My brother will think I'm gone. My nephews will think I'm gone. And I'll just go in there. I'll barricade the door and I'll just end it. I'll just put a hollow point to my head. And so I went upstairs. I had been drinking. I was communicating with a variety of people, you being one of them. And I went up to my bedroom. I laid down. I had my nine millimeter next to me. And I was raising it up. I couldn't do it. And something inside of me—there was two sides of me. One was saying, "Kill yourself. You're a pos. You know, you're horrible. You know, you ruined your marriage. You weren't there for your son. You should have seen the signs. All that stuff was going through my mind." But another part of me was saying, "You need to live. You know, God's got another plan for you." And so I put down my sidearm and I text a good dear friend of mine and uh, who I'd been communicating with during this as, as well as you, brother. And she said, you need to tell your your family. I was really good at putting on the mask, brother, with my brother. I was really good at putting on the mask. And you know, my go-to was I'm fine. Well, fine doesn't mean fine to me anymore. You know, I was hurting. I was, I was in a lot of pain uh, emotionally, uh, but I was really good at putting on that mask. But my family knew something was wrong. So I reached out to this dear friend, and she asked for permission. She said, you know, would it be okay if, if you give me the contact information for your brother and sister? And I knew I was at that point. I knew I was at my rock bottom, you know, at that point when I wanted to kill myself. You know, my life is disaster in every aspect of it. But I said, sure. So she contacted. I gave my contact information of my brother and sisters. She contacted them. And then my sister flew to the house. I mean, drought, drove, but got there quickly. We talked. We both cried. I was, I was sobbing. I, she asked me, do you, you know, why do you want to kill yourself? And I just felt like crap. So we talked. And then she said, you, you need to get some help. And I agreed. So I checked myself in uh, at a hospital nearby. And I was there for probably about four or five hours. And I knew I needed to be there. But my ego started taking over again. And I said, you know, I'm fine. You know, I know I need help. But this isn't the place. And at the urging of my sister and urging of the medical staff there, I said, I'm, I'm leaving. There had to be a, another place for first responders out there. And I remember hearing of one uh, down in Florida. And so I left. I got some medication. Um, I was feeling a little better, but I was still severely depressed. I still had suicidal ideation. And, but my sister was with me now. So I knew I had a plan. I knew I had a safe place. She was going to be with me, and my, as well as my brother, who was at the house now. And so I went home, and I started making phone calls. I started to do the thing I never did before. I started reaching out. I was doing with you and other people, but I was I was expanding my network and I was using my network and saying, I need help. I really need help. I'm gonna hurt myself. I'm gonna kill myself. And within 48 hours, I was down in Florida at a program called Shatterproof, uh, FHE, Florida uh, Health. Um, Florida, uh, I can't remember what FHE stands for, but FHE, it's, it's the Florida House Experience. That's what FHE stands for. 48 hours, brother, I was down there on a plane. I was talking to you at the time. I was talking to other people, of course, my family. And I remember going to the airport when I was at the airport. I was in, having such anxiety, brother. I mean, I was depressed. I was, had severe anxiety, which something I never had before. But I get into that airport, my sister was like, get on the plane, get on the plane. People were texting me, get on the plane, get on the plane. And I got to tell you, honestly, I was thinking about not getting on the plane. But I got on the plane uh, and it saved my life because I went down there, learned amazing tools, a lot of counseling, a lot of therapy. A lot of holistic, you know, things that I learned, meditation, therapy, yoga, all these things, breath work, you know, brain mapping, all this stuff. Again, brother, that was part of it. But people like you, people like other people, obviously my family. I took the first step, but if it wasn't for my network, if it wasn't for my good and dear friends, and my family, of course, I wouldn't be here today. You know, and my journey hasn't stopped, brother. I'm still in therapy, I'm still getting counseling. That place gives you the foundation, but I've been doing really well. And so my mission now my goal has changed i still have the show i love my show it's a passion of mine you know that but i want to do more not just get behind a mic and say this is what i think you should do and be happy and be grateful those are all important things but when you're hanging on on a ledge with three fingers a lot of times those words fall on deaf ears so I want to get in front more with first responders and help them however I can. And that's my mission now, brother. That is my mission because we have a serious problem in this country, as your listeners and you know, with the mental health of our brave men and women who protect us every day. When I say first responders, obviously that's just not law enforcement. That's fire, EMS, dispatchers. It's, it's the whole umbrella. So that's my mission now, brother, to just get out there more, tell my story in the hopes that it helps one person, man, if it helps one person out there, then I'm happy. But I'm not quitting, man. I'm not quitting. You were instrumental in that, brother. You were my accountability partner every day. You know, you every day you're texting me. What are you doing today? What are you doing today? So again, man, I am forever grateful for you, my family, and other amazing people in my life.
0: Wow, man. I'm sitting here, Patrick, and I'm getting chills, man. I, I honestly can feel your passion for this. like, And what's crazy is people are hearing this and they're like, well, this was years ago. We're talking, this was weeks within months ago. I just feel so blessed to have you on because this is real time. So let me ask you some questions. If you don't mind, let's take through this a little bit and break it down just so for the listeners, because I think the listeners are hearing this. I mean, as your friend, I was reading through what you were telling me. You're telling me, hey, Brock, I got a problem drinking. I'm starting to drink too much. You know, we were coaching each other. You know, we're friends, man. We're, We're communicating. But then there was a point where you can only give me so much information, where you have that mask on. You're almost afraid to say, hey, man, listen, I really need help. And you're holding on to that machismo. We all do right until it's like until we hit that rock bottom like man i I don't know where to go and so what was it that you were holding on to what was your fear of just telling everybody even when you were like kicking out all these messages was a fear of people you were the strong guy what do you think it was
1: it was just a wide variety of things, brother. It was my ego. It was my fear of what people would think of me. You know, it was a fear of what my family would think. And you said it, you know, I got this show, brother. I got this amazing show that I'm blessed to have. But I was scared to death of what people listening to me would think of me now. I was really good. I was really good at putting on the mask and telling people or advising people what to do with my, on my show. But I was scared to death to tell my story because I was so afraid of what people would think to me. And therapy and a lot of counseling and continued therapy and counseling has helped me realize that I needed to get out of my own way and tell my story in order to help others. So fear is the biggest thing to answer your question that held me back. And that's a problem that we have in society where mental health, anytime you say mental health or anything, I'm not saying with everybody, but You know, as well as I do with the first responder community, we still have serious problems because I was part of that problem and not the solution until I came out and said, yeah, I wanted to hurt myself. Yeah, I was drinking too much. Yeah. I mean, until I lifted that and took off that mask, brother, it was a game changer. I'm not afraid anymore. I had a, a buddy of mine reach out to me when I was down in Florida and said, hey, man, you got a lot of good friends in your old apartment. They want to know what's going on. Would you have a problem? He knew where I was at. He knew where I was doing, just like you and other people. But he said, do you have a problem me telling your friends, your good friends, why you're there? I said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You tell my story. I'll get on the phone with them and tell exactly what I just told you, brother, if it means that I can help help somebody. You know, like I said, it was fear, it was ego, but fear probably the biggest.
0: I love the fact that when you started opening up and you started reaching out to people, that the rally cry and the people just started coming in. And I think that's a huge message today is nobody can help you unless they know. When you're secretive, you're hiding in your room, you're isolation, you're depressed, and you're not communicating these feelings, nobody's coming. We can't help.
1: Nobody's coming to save you. You have to save yourself. Yeah, you have friends and family that love you and care about you. They want the best for you. But ultimately, it comes down to you, the individual, to take that first step. I didn't realize that. I was too egotistical. I was too, it's not like I'm a narcissist or anything, but my ego got in the way of that, and I was fear. I was scared to death. But once I did that, it was liberating. You know that. It was liberating. I don't have a problem telling people I have problems. I have, you know, mental health stuff I'm going through. I used to, not too long ago, not anymore. And that's not just trying to help other people. That's healing me, brother. So if I can come on shows and tell my story, you know, if it can help people, great, but it's helping me too. It's adding to my therapy. And the more I told my story, in counseling and in therapy and one-on-one with my psychiatrist, the better I felt. And then I started thinking, and I'm not trying to go backwards, why didn't I do this earlier? Why didn't I do this earlier? So why didn't you? What was it? Like I said, it was fear, man. You know, from the time I was in the military, and I'm not, I love the military. I'm not ragging on the military. I was in a unit that you suck it up and go on. You don't talk about your problems. That was reinforced in law enforcement. Again, I am not trying to besmirch. I'm not trying to talk down to law enforcement. I love law enforcement, but it is it's conditioning. And when you have, you know, 20 something years of that, you know, almost 30 with the military, it's ingrained in you. That is part of it's how you're thinking, you know. And that's a big issue with the first responder community now that they still are so afraid to come forward and tell their story. You got to do what's best for you. One other thing really quick is I learned how to advocate for myself. Become selfish with your mental health. I'm not saying you don't care about people. I'm just saying you have to be very, very selfish for your mental and physical well-being because nobody's going to do it for you. Nobody's going to do it for you. You got to do it for yourself.
0: And you're hitting it, dude, but you're speaking my language because this is all I talk about is advocating and just having a, vo- we're sick as our secrets, right? If I don't talk about it, this is a therapy session for you and for me. What I've been talking about for months and months and months has been just share your story. It's therapeutic and talk about it. But you're absolutely right. In law enforcement, I know they say, hey, we're breaking the stigma. We're not. We're still, I mean, up to a month ago, you were still holding on to that. It goes back to that whole we're never dead thing. It's, it's right. It's this, this machismo. Like, I can do this. I don't have to tell anybody. I can handle this. I got this. Three most dangerous words in the English dictionary. I got this. Right? Because we don't. There comes times in our lives where we struggle and we need help, man. And so I'm so thankful that you're saying this. Let me ask this question. I think this is really important for the listeners. I know it's almost one of those what came first, the chicken or the egg thing. But do you believe that your alcohol was fueling the mental illness? No,
1: absolutely, my brother. And you were instrumental in that because you were like, I was telling you, Brock, I'm drinking. I'm drinking. And then I even went a step further. When you asked me if I was drinking sometimes, I lied and said, I I told you I'm not drinking. But I was still drinking. Absolutely. Look, I am depressed severely. And we all know that alcohol is what? A depressant. So what is it doing? It's just making you feel like shit more. Absolutely. You know, and self-medicating, whether drugs, alcohol, that's not going to help the situation. It's not going to help the situation. When I was down in treatment, I was down. I never had a problem with alcohol, but I was going down that road of becoming an alcoholic. I know why I, I was. So when I was down in Florida, it wasn't required for me to go to the AA meetings, but I went to every AA meeting, every one of them, because everybody has a story to tell and alcohol I'm not saying it's evil. I'm just saying that it didn't help my situation. And it sure as hell didn't help the situation of these brave men and women that were down there with substance abuse issues. So if you're out there with an alcohol issue, substance issue, there is help out there. You can do it, but you gotta do it. You gotta take that first step. There's a great quote, one of my favorite quotes by Martin Luther King Jr. You don't have to see the whole staircase in front of you. That's what I was doing. I was like, well, I'm worried about that's it. not even happened yet. Just take that first step. Just take the first step. That's it. And I know you're some of, listen, oh, it's hard. You don't know my situation. You don't, I'm gonna tell you right now, and I don't mean to sound mean about this. Your situation is not unique. It's not unique. And I don't, I'm not trying to sound mean to the listeners. You know it, bro. It's not unique. So realize that there is help out there. There is hope, but you got to take that first step.
0: Yeah. We carry this trauma like a badge of honor. Like, this is mine, man. All this stuff I'm going through, it's mine. You don't understand what I'm going through. You've never seen what I've seen. And so it's mine. I'm not going to share it. Until you're like, listen, man, can I give this to you? Can you share the load with me? And let's just dissect it and figure out what it is. It's a monster that you have to kill. And you got to slowly dissect it. Yeah.
1: And you're right. I don't know what the uh, listener is going through. I'm not them. But I do know if they're suffering from whatever, it's not unique because there's millions of other people, millions of other brothers and sisters That are suffering from the same thing. So you got to get that behind you or try to, you know, push that aside and say, all right. The one thing that I learned in treatment, my brother, is it's not who has the most horrible story, not about who has the bigger story. It's not like that. Everybody has a story. I remember I was sitting next to a first responder who said, man, I just listened to this story in here and oh man, I'm afraid to tell my story. Why? It's important to you, right? everybody's suffering. There's not one person out there that's not suffering from something. It's not about who has the more traumatic story. It's about telling your story. That's it. That's what's important. And when you start opening up and you start hearing people's story and we cry and we hug and telling stories, that is therapeutic, brother. Nobody's going to judge you. And if there are going to judge you, if you're out there and you need help, you don't need them in your life. I'm sorry. You don't need them in your life. You got to do what's best for you and advocate for yourself.
0: Yeah. So give me some takeaways. I know you went down to this really cool place. I have some buddies there. I I was making phone calls at the same time. I was levying this information with your sisters. I'm like, listen, please don't send this guy to any recovery program. There are programs out there just that work with first responders, people who understand what we're going through, who are culturally competent. You ended up in the right place. Now, what were some takeaways that you can give the listeners that you learned there that you implemented?
1: You know, I, there's so many takeaways, brother. I mean, I think I mentioned it a couple of times, advocating for yourself and you are important. You are worth, you have to live. There are so many people that count on you and you are, are special, you are unique. You have many people that love you, but advocating for yourself and learning how to be selfish with your mental health and selfish for your physical well being. There's so many takeaways, but those are probably the biggest. And love yourself, man. You have to love yourself. We're all flawed, man, but you have to love yourself before you can love others. And I've learned so much with this program, Shatterproof, you know, for first responders, F-H-E. And you can Google it, go online, you'll find all kinds of information. But there's so many takeaways, brother, but those are probably the biggest that I took away.
0: I love that, man. And you know what, I just, number one, I wanted to see your face-to-face. Like I'm excited to get some lunch with you this week, but you're a survivor, brother. And what I like about that is that you're willing to take it because you could have went in the shed and you could have killed yourself and you could have been another another number, another statistic. And then you have more trauma in your family. we just go down that road. Like well, I told you before, I'm more impressed with you today for taking that step than I ever was with what you did in your show. Because in my opinion now, brother, you have a story to tell. You have, like your stories were great. I mean, and I push people to your podcast. I love it. But your story today, there's conviction to it. There's substance to who you are. And I appreciate
1: it, brother. And, and, you know, I got to that point, man, where I was like, my kids are going to be better off. You know, somehow in my crazy mind, I thought my kids are going to be better off. I wasn't looking at the fact like you just, and you're very right, that I'm going to cause my kids, I'm going to cause my family more. My problems are over now. But their problems, they got to live with the grief. They have to live the loss of their father. I was texting my kids, brother, at my lowest point and putting them through that and saying, all right. There's two of you. I don't want this property anymore. And not realizing the trauma I was putting them through at the time I was doing that. And then my kids are the best kids in the world. They love me more than anything. And they were texting me saying, dad, please don't hurt yourself. Don't kill yourself. Don't do that. We need you. We love you. And in my crazy mind, I thought that they would be better off. My ex-wife was texting me, a wonderful person, mother of my kids, texted me and said, we love you. You know, you're important. The kids need you. But I was in that mindset where I was like, they're going to be better off. And once you get into that mindset, it is very difficult to come back. Very difficult. But by the grace of God, people like you and other dear friends and my network, I didn't do it. And I'm forever grateful to be here today. Forever grateful. Does that mean that every day is going to be great? No. But now I have the tools I have the support. I'm not ashamed anymore. I'm not afraid anymore. Uh, sure, I worry about things, but not to the degree I was worrying about it not too long ago. And I know now that if I go through a rough patch, all I have to do is just pick up the phone, talk to these brothers and sisters that I've made through this program. And I'm on the phone with them all the time. We're all pumping each other up. You can do it. I was on the phone with a brother of mine, really good guy in the program with me. He called me up a couple of days ago. He was upset. He said, Pat, I need to talk to you. I said, absolutely, man. What do you need? How can I help? He said, I'm going to an AA meeting, but I want to go to the liquor store. I said, man, brother, I'm here for you. You're loved. You can do this. You got whatever you want. I want you to be on the phone with me until you get to your AA meeting. He said, okay. He said, I can do this. He said, good. Stay on the phone with me. I'm going to take it a step further. When you get to your AA meeting, because that's AA meeting, that's where you're going, I want you to take a picture. I want you to prove to me that you're at the AA meeting. And he did. And I'm not trying to Sound egotistical, but stuff like that. If I could help him and stay on the phone with him, but that's stuff I didn't take advantage of, brother. And I'm taking advantage of it now. And I'm being advocating for myself right now. If I have to get on the phone with you or other dear friends, I'm going to do it. I'm not ashamed anymore. The fear is gone. I'm an open book. I have nothing to hide. And that is very, very liberating and powerful.
0: What a cool transition. I love it. You said something before. That your you're almost your life missions pivoted. Today, Patrick, what is your life mission? To help
1: as many first responders, and anybody for that matter, but my focus is on the first responder community who are suffering right now. You know as well as I do, so many of them suffer in silence. I have a platform with my show. I have a vast network. I have people down in the program at Shatterproof. I want to help people more than I have been, brother. It's hard to describe, but there's a fire in me now that I haven't had in a long time. That is my mission. If I need to get on a plane and go and talk to somebody, I'll do that. However I can help out there, going on amazing shows like yours and getting the word out and telling my story, that's
0: all part of the mission now,
1: to help as many people as I can, whatever it takes.
0: I can't wait to see where this goes. Patrick, tell these listeners how they can find you.
1: I love you so much, man. I mean, CJEvolution.com. CJEvolution.com is my website, has all my shows on there. People have been asking me, they've been reaching out to me right and left. What's happening to the show? You haven't done a show in a while. The show's not going anywhere. I've been taking time for myself. Like I just explained, the show's going to be back in full throttle probably next week. So CJEvolution.com. You mentioned the book earlier. If you want an autographed copy... I'll give it to you for free. You reach out to me. I'll give you a signed copy. If you want an ebook version of it, it's on the website, cjevolution.com.
0: Man, I love you, brother. I'm I'm proud of you. Seriously, I trust this friendship. You know what I mean? I think we lose that in life where we need those connections. I know that you're a guy that I can call, that you'll respond. And that's big for me. So I appreciate that. And and more than anything, man, I appreciate you sharing this story. I could feel your spirit. I felt your passion. And uh, you're doing big things, man. Hey, just take me along with you. If you need help and vice versa, let me, let's help together, you know? You're going to be there. Now, you might not be physically sometimes,
1: but you're in my heart, along with my family and everybody else out there, you know, who has helped me along the way, because it is not a one-man game. We all need each other. We all need each other. So if you're out there, you know, I don't know if you're going to put up links or whatever to some helplines or your amazing organization.
0: We're definitely putting in. Yeah, we're putting links up.
1: Please do me a favor, listener, anybody out there. You can reach out to me. You can reach out to Brock. You can reach out to your network. You are loved. You are cared for. You are needed. We need you. There's no mistakes in the universe. Whatever you believe in, there's no. you're not a mistake. God, whoever you believe in, does not make mistakes. There's a reason why you are here, and that's to live the best life possible and to help as many people as you can. At least that's what I believe. So please seek help if you need it.
0: A good buddy always tells me, thank you for turning your mess into a message. I love that. Exactly. I love that. I mean. Steal it. Yeah, you can take it. Hey, thank you for chasing the vase. Jump on, Pat. Get on to it, man. Turn your mess into a message. That comes from Blue Robinson from Addict to Athlete. He's a great guy. Thank you, man. Thank you for being on. If you want to learn more about us, go to the striplingwarriorchallenge.com. Hope to see you soon. Pat, we're out. Thanks, brother. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.